Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarra Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Power has often demanded silence, but it has also compelled people to speak. In the confessional booths of even the most sexually repressed societies, the priest still solicited all the salacious details. In our own day, compelling people to speak their truth has become a dominant mode of exerting control over them. But there's one particularly significant, and perhaps unexpected moment in the history of post-war state power that exemplifies these tensions between the compulsion to speak and the compulsion to be silent. Aliens. Until recently, the imperious silence of the state on the question of UFOs had led to an endless babble of speculation about them. But there's more to it than that. Increasingly, we're coming to realise that through the latter half of the 20th century, the sources of lots of modern-day myths that surround UFOs were actually the intelligence services themselves. We might even start to ask, not what are they hiding from us, but why do they seem to want us to believe so much? And who better to discuss this all with? The twists and turns of state power, the politics of seeing, and the mysterious blurry images dominated by their own myths, than Trevor Paglin an artist whose body of work perhaps engages the politics and technologies of seeing now more completely than any other. That work made him one of the most important artists of the War on Terror, where his work photographing the hidden depths of the CIA black site network took him to the outskirts of Kabul in Afghanistan. Since then, his projects have taken him under the sea to photograph the cables that carry the American NSA's data, and, most recently, to the Californian desert to photograph some of the 350 objects in orbit around the world that no one knows what they are. It has also taken his work into space, where an archive of images from the full scope of human history will remain steadily flying around, long after the last human is gone. I attended his recent exhibition in Berlin called Hide the Real, Show the False, where the gallery space was turned over to fragments of 1950s and 1960s mind control training videos in an hour-long wall-sized video close-up of the counterintelligence agent Richard Doty talking about his work in producing the confusions of ufology and then telling us what he says is really out there. My name is Richard Holmes. In this episode of Navara FM, I spoke to Trevor about images conviction, and the limits of the known. And yes, aliens. This episode, which starts with Trevor's early work documenting CIA black sites, contains descriptions of torture in its first half. So your work, amongst many other things, investigates the politics of visibility. What is 
occluded from view, what is displayed ostentatiously, what hides in plain sight, as well as the technologies that visibilize and invisibilize. So in the period of the war on terror, which maybe we haven't yet fully um, left, which is perhaps the period where you uh, came of age as an artist, although I understand you were doing things, of course, before then as well, that politics of visibility was already quite complicated. So we had the, in some ways, false visibility of the embedded journalists who were put into US military uh, squadrons, or I don't know exact unit size, but placed in the theater of war in order to deliver essentially a kind of false image back to the American public. We had, to use sort of the, the parlance of the time, we had the kind of the, um, the known unknowns of Guantanamo Bay. Um, and then we had these unknown unknowns of uh, CIA black sites, or at least they were unknown until, of course, uh, lots of investigative reporting, including your own work, Torture Taxi, and blank spats uh, on the map. How do you see the politics of visibility in the war on terror as a kind of a prelude in some ways to our, our present era? It's a good question. Um, it's a complicated question. So when the war on terror began, the signature institution of it really was a prison, Guantanamo Bay, right? There was a kind of extraterritoriality that was that defined that space. And we knew that in addition to Guantanamo Bay, there was a network of secret prisons around the world. And we knew that because from time to time, they'd, you know, the military would say something like, oh, well, we caught Abu Zubaydah or we caught Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And these guys would not show up at Guantanamo Bay. And so you could infer they have to be somewhere in the world. There, therefore, there must be some kind of secret prison system to accommodate that. And, you know, I, along with a lot of other people, tried to think about how we would locate those prisons, what was possible to learn about a global infrastructure that was crafted in such a way as to be invisible and crafted in such a way as to be secret. And those are not really the same thing. So in terms of the politics of vision and visibility, I don't think it's a simple dynamic between concealing and revealing. Um, it's much more of a question about what does that invisibility itself look like? What kinds of cultural and political work does that invisibility do? And on the investigative side, it, the question is, what places does that invisibility or that secrecy touch something that you can see? And through a process of drawing those outlines, can you learn something about the shape of those secret institutions? I'm thinking back to uh, the war that precedes the, the, the war on terror, which is uh, in the American context, um, of course, the series of uh, wars in the, the Balkans. But I want to go back before that even um, to think about the Gulf War of 
1991. Perhaps the most famous, uh, indeed only famous statement of any uh, French media theorist ever uh, is Jean Baudrillard's statement that uh, the Gulf War did not take place, which is the uh, title of his, the third of his three essays in, I think it's Le Monde, right? The, he asserts that the Gulf War will not take place. In the first one, that the Gulf War is not actually taking place. In the second one, then, last of all, that the Gulf War did not take place. Of course, what he means by this is that there is a spectacle or a screen that is accessible to the American audience that is not actually um, the real war. The uh, the real war is this massacre, this suffering, this taking place on the road back to Baghdad um, that is in fact occluded by the screen. And I think it's really important, the thing you were saying just a moment ago, that there's a kind of dynamic of visibility and invisibility, because this is also the moment at which Friedrich Kittler, another media theorist, is also writing very excitedly, it has to be said, about these um, cameras that are on the front of missiles that allow the missiles to be kind of uh, flown through the air with great precision and then hit them hit their uh, targets in the in the Iraqi army. And so there's this sense that there's a great deal of visualization going on, even as uh, in some sense the war is is not happening. And I wonder about these photographs that you took of these black sites. And I wondered whether or not you thought there was an element of that work that was attempting to ensure that the war on terror did take place in some sense, like to offer a sort of a, a veracity to it or you know, verisimilitude to these images? That's a really good question. There's a, there's a lot of complicated dynamics underlying the way that you've posed those questions and the work of those two theorists. I don't want to go into a critique of either of those ideas unless you want to. We can. Um, Feel free if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, they're very different questions, right? I mean, they're, they're, they, they, they appear to be connected through this question of opticality or visuality, but I think they're talking about dramatically different things and the legacies of those ideas and how those ideas cohere in culture, technology, and society are, are very, very different. Um, in terms of my own work going out and trying to find black sites and photograph them, you know, it was on one hand, I was thinking about it as a performance, really. You know, a I was thinking about it as a way of insisting on the right to make images. And you got to go back to that time in history. There was a, a huge amount of paranoia, especially around photography. And photographers be, were being arrested for doing things like photographing the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Photography was seen as a very suspicious um, activity. And so part of me was a, was interested in photography as a performance, as a, as a legal performance, as a, as a exercise of a right to make images. Um, the other thing that was going on at that time that in, in retrospect is a little bit difficult maybe to imagine is that a lot of people, myself included, really thought that this global secret war and the kinds of imperial powers associated with that could very easily turn into a, a kind of fascism, right? And the other thing you got to think about is the fact that this was very terrifying work to do. It was really scary. And um, there was enormous amount of 
repression going on against journalists, uh, um, among people that were trying to investigate this material. And at that time, I thought there's a very good chance that I'll go to prison for doing this and for doing that, for doing that research. And a part of the task as I saw it was I was thinking about the future and I was thinking about, you know, one of two things is going to happen. There's either going to be a continuation of this philosophy of government, which will turn into a kind of fascism and, as a, and if that is indeed the future, I probably won't be a part of it. And all of this, all of the information about what happened during this time will be covered up, will be, will go away. Or there, this time will end and there will be a reckoning. And I want, if that is a possibility of the future, I would like there to be a record that some people had written down the names, photographed the places, and recorded what was possible to learn about that time so that we can uh, have an accounting of it, really. And so, so that was really the, the, the mindset that I, that I brought to it. And so that, it's a very long answer to your question, but the, the point is that it was not really I didn't think of what I was doing as a simple act of like, take a picture, now it's visible, now it took place. You know? <laughs> yeah, there's a kind of a, there's a, kind of a, a forming of a constituency mm -hmm, exactly. through the image, um, even if that constituency is in the, is in the future. Um, and a language, right? And so like, you know, I, I thought very much about what, what I was doing, what other people were doing is building a vocabulary with which you could have a conversation about this, you know, invisible, intensely coercive um, infrastructure and, and phenomena. Mm -hmm. And that was, that theory was really vindicated in some of the um, lawsuits that were brought against the CIA by people who had been disappeared and tortured. Um, in a number of cases, people like Khaled al-Masri were people who had been kidnapped, tortured, disappeared, um, and got out because they weren't the person that the CIA was looking for, even there was a lot of cases of mistaken identities. Um, and some of them tried to sue the CIA, said like, you illegally, you know, disappeared me. And those cases were invariably, possibility of those cases occurring was invariably challenged by the CIA um, under something called the state secrets privilege. And the argument was that any evidence that would be submitted in court would be by definition secret and therefore it was impossible to have a conversation about the fact that these activities had taken place and therefore there cannot be a legal proceeding here. And what some of the lawyers challenging that did was collect news stories, collect um, research that journalists and other people had done, collect photographs, and put all of those together and tried to submit to the court, say, here is the basis for the conversation. Here's the vocabulary that we're going to use to 
to, to have these proceedings. Now, that didn't work, but philosophically, that was very um, consonant or that was very similar to, you know, at least how I was thinking about a lot of that work mm. at that time. Yeah, it sort of summons a constituency in the future, but it also relates in some way, seems to me, to the kind of past of war photography as an act of uh, kind of documentation. One thing that is really striking in comparison to the other famous war photographs is that your photographs are extremely quiet. They are extremely distant objects. We should just, we should say technically how they're produced, right? You are often standing many miles away from the object in question that you are photographing. You use a technique called limit tele photography. Is that what I going to get in the term, right? Yeah, I just made that up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, I'm happy to slightly modify it. Limit telephotography, which is a, a technique of kind of looking at things at the absolute limits of their, uh, their visibility. Um, and I, you make a really good point in one of your articles on your, your blog, which people should read because it's, uh, it's really fascinating, um, which is that often it is easier in some ways to photograph Jupiter because there is a mere five miles or five kilometers or so of atmosphere in between you and Jupiter. But going across the world, you might have like 40 kilometers of... of and, and so these images appear extremely hazy, extremely kind of muted in some sense. And that's in really stark contrast to the war images we're familiar with, right? Um, the Terror of War, this uh, also known as the Napalm Girl image, is an extremely dramatic, extremely brutal image uh, from the war in Vietnam. And there's another image that I, that I think about a lot, which is not really a war photograph, although it's, it obviously functions like that and was obviously planned like that, which is the not the still, but the, the looping gif that plays in millions of people's heads, which is the plane hitting the South Tower of the World Trade Center, right? Which is, in some ways, the image that begins the whole war on terror, right? It's, it, it's this image of this plane crash on 9-11 that... that uh, in some ways, inaugurates the war. And so, how do you think about the kind of the, in some ways, the the softness of these images, the sort of the the gentle, the precision of them, but also the the sense they're not blaring kind of uh, you know dramatic images in that sense. Well, I think I'm not coming from a documentary tradition, so I mean, this is where you know my background and interest as an artist really sculpt the way that that I make images. Where I'm glad that that documentary photography exists. I'm glad that war photography exists. That's not what I want to do. Um, and that is, it's not aesthetically or intellectually as interesting to me as images that on one hand make a claim and then run away from that claim at the same time. You know, like meaning here's a photograph or here's an image of a secret military site or a spy satellite or whatever it is. And I'm going to tell you that that's what it is, but that is not self-evident at all in the image, right? You need to have the title or you need to have the context in order to prompt you to see it that way. And even when you do see it that way, it does not resolve into something that is sensible, right? And to me, that was a strategy to reflect the kinds of questions that I was asking about those institutions themselves was trying to capture that sense of there being something there, trying to understand it, but being thwarted um, to a large extent 
by one's efforts to understand that. Which will bring us uh, at a later point in this to your work on units, uh, these unidentified objects that are flying uh, around the earth that no one knows what they are, or no one at least publicly claim what they are. Um, But first of all, this sort of sense that these are images without sort of bare images, like without a certain kind of context uh, to overload them, um, is sort of the opposite of the situation we find ourselves in right now, which is that, um, and, it's, and, and in your show, um, Hide the Real, Show the False, uh, in Berlin, which I saw, and the one in New York, You've Just Been Fucked by PsyOps, which I didn't see because I don't have many in similar, yeah. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Um, which deals with, in large part, um, with Richard Doty, who's this sort of, in some ways, mythic, right? A self-mythologizing counterintelligence officer um, who details in a hour-long, longer than an hour, high-definition video of close-up, largely of his face. Zooms in sometimes, zooms out other times of him speaking. And what he's describing is sort of two things simultaneously. One is a strategy that he used against people in the UFO community to sow a combination of truths and counter-truths. Uh, also, truths and just lies. Counter-truths just seems like an extremely <laughs> inventing new terminology here to make it seem more reasonable um, or more bureaucratic, perhaps. Truth and lies. Um, and the second half, or, or like, and then he's dispersed with this, he tells you what he thinks has really been going on. And of course, we realize this is the same strategy he's been using on all the time, and we fall into this kind of trap of uh, sort of dissimulation in, in every direction or every kind of possible uh, understandable direction. How do you see that strategy that Richard Doty deploys both in that video and also through his, his, his life? How do you untangle that, or is untangling it not the point? Yeah, so, I mean, I got interested in Doty thinking about algorithmic culture and uh, AI and chat GPT. I mean, that's really what that video is about for me. And in, 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 that's why I made it at least up, but there's, there's no evidence of that in the, the film itself. Um, but yeah, he's um, somebody who's trained in disinformation and has made a career out of that. Um, there is, a technique to doing that. Um, He talks about those techniques. He talks about the theory of how you make disinformation, what what constitutes effective versus not so effective disinformation. So he talks a lot about the mechanics of it. And then, of course, he's simultaneously talking about aliens and abductions and cattle mutilations, all, all sorts of pretty fantastical things. Um, but he's a very tricky character to listen to um, because a lot of times some of the more outlandish things that he says, you can verify and they turn out to be true. Now, that is at the same time something that he says very clearly has to be a part of the strategy of disinformation, right? Is that you have to have these landing points for for lack of a better word, things that that are verifiable and that adds veracity to the things that you cannot verify. So for me, 
the point of the Doty film was not to explain something about UFOs or about disinformation so much as to to kind of show the kind of epistemological hall of mirrors that you end up in when you start deploying those strategies in terms of storytelling or media or that sort of thing. And to show you how dangerous that is in the sense of you know, dangerous for your sanity, really. And there, there's, there's uh, several people that, that Doty did his, his, his work on that, that, that really went insane, you know, as a result of working with him and, or, or interacting with him. So he has this almost Lovecraftian figure in that sense. Um, so yeah, it, it, it seemed to me that the kinds of strategies that he was using were very similar to the kinds of strategies I saw being used um, in, in, in social media, in, you know, internet culture in general and AI as well. And, and so that, that's how I got interested in it. I want to make a connection between this work and perhaps the experience of those people who you're describing as having been rendered insane by uh, the sort of Lovecraftian aspect of Doty's personality, which is interesting itself because he comes across, to me at least, as sort of like the quintessential inoffensive middle American. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this is how he would be read if I was more fluent in American culture, but like that's how he seems to me. Like he's just like oh, he some is, guy. he is. Like, when yeah. when I first met him, I was terrified. I was like, oh, am I going to look at Cthulhu and my mind will be, you know, <laughs> warped forever? Um, I really, I really was quite afraid to meet him. Um, and but you're absolutely right. He's really genial guy. Really, you know, nice. Really, really easy to talk to. Really accommodating. I mean, he's, he's genuinely, I genuinely like him. You know, um. and do you trust anything he says? What do you believe in what his uh, what he tells you? I think of him as a kind of meme machine, right? Like, yeah. that, right. He's, he's, he, he's like a chat GPT kind of like truth production thing, right? Little yeah, exactly. Are falling so there. Yeah. Like, I think of him being very similar to a kind of a large language model where here's this huge amount of background information and like whatever you ask, it will be recombined in such a way that um, that that will come out and you, you will be served something. And, you know, what, the, what you're being served, you can often trace back and see like well, where is this stuff coming from and and in in some cases it's some states sort of I really don't know where he's getting this stuff mm -hmm. but um, but other places you know there is a lore to the UFO story uh, there is there is a very real history of disinformation cover-ups and conspiracies and, and that sort of thing and but for me like looking at the veracity of his statements like did the army make a film about the ufo that crashed at roswell in 1947 like i there there's so many things there that yeah that that, that that's not the point to me of really mm -hmm. like you know sure. to figuring out you know what's true and what's not it's it's that the haziness of it we've talked about kind of the, the a surplus of images um and in some ways, the kind of the production of too many images and the production of too few images and the kind of unevenness and the way in which 
power operates in, in between these, uh, or the image without context, the image with too much context, and so on. And I want to make a slightly troubling comparison between these two phases of your work that we talked about, so the, the recent Richard stuff on UFOs and, the, and then the previous stuff uh, about the war on terror, or in the context of the war on terror, which is between the experience of those people who were interned in black sites, often in sensory deprivation system, um, situations, masked earplugs um, in the place called the Salt Pit, which was a place near, I think, inside Bagram Air Force Base. Uh, it was Kabul, outside of it. Was outside the Air Force Base. Okay. Yeah, it was a sort of probably about 20 miles west of there in an old, right. what had been an old brick factory before the um, the Soviet invasion. There was a prison at Bagram itself there as well. So the experience of those people who are put into sensory deprivation, who are therefore left without images, without sensory experience of any kind, and only have the sort of the unstable, shifting inner world to deal with, unable to make objects in the world to, in some ways, verify their own existence, even. And the effects of this are, are deliberate and well-documented. People um, fall apart. Uh, in the most like fundamental sense, they lose a sense of identity, and this is the purpose of it to um, crack open this inner space. And I wonder how you thought that your work, at any point, I'm sorry, the comparison is between that sort of experience of shifting images and the experience that is then deliberately produced not through a deficit of images, but through a surplus of images. In the case of Richard Doty's disinformation techniques. And I wondered how, at any point in that, in your series, in your work, you see it as making contact or engaging with that inner space of inexpressible images or uncommunicable images. So on on one hand, we're talking about kind of sensory deprivation environments and that that lack of images and that inability to in a situation like that, have a sense of self because one sense of self is always relational. Right? Um, on the other hand, in a figure like Doty or in a figure like Reddit, you know, or you have a, a kind of overwhelming flood of images, which produces as well a kind of disorientation. Mm. Um, and the question is, what, what I mean is not just the flood of images on the website, mm -hmm. but rich, someone sees something right around an Air Force base, and they know they've seen something. They don't know what they've seen, mm -hmm. right? And they have this shifting inner perception of that thing. They have this like indelible image, presumably, but mm -hmm. it turns out not to be indelible. That changes, that shifts mm -hmm. all over time. Mm -hmm. um, the people are unable to like externalize into the world, and in that sense, there's a kind of a a sense that the target of both the sensory deprivation and the target of Richard Doty is the sequence of images that goes on in the mind, what feels real, what feels unreal, okay, right. and so yeah. on. Yeah. So that's a, one of the really foundational concepts of PSYOPs, right? Is that you are always going to interpret something that you see through the lens of your own preconditioning. And that preconditioning can be physiological, you know, through cultural, historical, your own subjectivity, what have you. Um, so in terms of, I guess, how I touch that in a couple of ways. I mean, I guess there that is one of the reasons why I've, I've been more interested in the incomplete images, the images that do not speak themselves, the, the blurriness, the 
those forms of abstraction. Um, I think about that as being related to what we might call the the smart argument for formalism, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is <laughs> which is the I think it's a the argument that when you are confronted with an image that does not speak itself, your recourse is to generate a meaning for that image. Um, and in doing so, there's a transference of agency from the image into you. Now, I think it's a bullshit argument, but, um, but I think there's something to it, right? Having said that, the thing that is that, that there is to it, you know, if you want to kind of make a modernist argument for, you know, abstract painting is very similar to the psyops argument, right? Which is that I'm going to show you an, a blurry image of something that you might interpret as being a photograph of a UFO. You might interpret as being a photograph of a seagull. You might interpret as a photograph of being a balloon. And that interpretation is going to be based on your predispositions. And I can manipulate you um, by learning about those predispositions of you and serving you images that will confirm them. Which is itself interesting in the terms of the war on terror, because overwhelmingly people who are interned in this this program are Muslims, right? Uh, and the CIA goes to great lengths to to work out the psychology that they think pertains uniquely and specifically to Muslims, and therefore like the kinds of uh, techniques they can use very specifically to break that down, mobilizing those dispositions, and presumably. It's engaging with the the religious convictions that um, perhaps yeah I mean, there's there's it's it's really all over the place um, and and it's very often far cruder than their own theories would suggest. A lot of the what was going on in these secret prisons was techniques that were really pioneered in the fifties and sixties through a program that has this. Conspiracies associated with it called MK Ultra, which is a series of um, uh, the CIA was funding a bunch of psychologists to try to figure out whether you could um, control people's minds, and so they were they they had done a huge amount of work on sensory deprivation, a lot of work on doing things like isolating somebody for weeks at a time and playing repetitive messages to them. A lot of what they learned in that program was uh, turned into an interrogation manual called the Kubark Manual, which was written in the 1960s. Um, and that, that really continued to be the underlying philosophy of, 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 of what was going on in some of these secret prisons. And so there was sensory deprivation to a certain extent, but in places like the dark prison, what they described is it was actually really loud. I mean, they would have shit like strobe lights flashing all the time. They'd be playing, you know, like heavy metal music, like really, really loud 24 hours a day or doing things like playing the Barney, like uh, children's song over and over again on, mm. on loops. Um, those are techniques that were meant to break somebody down mentally. And the idea was that, that you would break somebody down and then you would basically be able to control their mind and they would have, uh, they would have to do what you said and tell you 
um, the truth um, that they you would just break down their ability to resist. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different lineage, albeit a related one to the um, psyops tradition, which um, is more about um, playing with your own predispositions. And there's a, a really weird thing they did in Vietnam called um, Operation Wandering Soul. What their theory, and this is the army that was doing this, um, their theory was that in Vietnamese culture, the idea was that if you weren't properly buried, that you would sort of haunt the landscape as a ghost. And, and so they would make these really bizarre recordings with like echoes and phasers, all this kind of like 60s sound effects that were meant to be the voices of these ghosts, you know, wandering through the um, the landscape. And they would, they would play these from helicopters and speakers and that sort of thing. So that's an example of, of trying to capitalize on somebody's predispositions um, or, or, or prior held beliefs in order to manipulate them. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the kind of the survival, evade, resistance, and escape training as well. So mm-hmm. this is a training, yeah, yeah seer training. It's a area of training for U.S. military operatives, particularly focused on special operatives and people who might be kidnapped um, or otherwise taken prisoner. And the techniques are that I developed in that and I like used in that are have been allegedly claimed as sort of the reverse engineered versions of the techniques that were used to uh interrogate that's what i'm wondering absent going through seer training how can we cultivate psyop immunity i think it's really hard i've been thinking a lot about this is like we can we do have some concepts around media literacy and kind of intellectual self-defense in terms of looking at how advertising works and that sort of thing. But what is really insidious about this psyops-based approach is that it is much more serpentine than that. And it plays off of your desires. It plays with that oscillation between truth and falsity, for lack of a better word, although I'm even reluctant to use those words. Um, The point of it is also to make you believe something or make you do something. And the thing is, is that the more targeted it is, the more effective it is, right? And so, in Doty's time, you know, they would run operations that were targeted for one person, but it would cost millions of dollars. I mean, they went through an unbelievable amount of work to craft these things. My concern is that that's increasingly possible to do for free, right? With, you know, if I am Facebook and I have your entire metadata history, I know an enormous amount about you and I can attach that metadata history to some kind of generative AI system or to, um, you know, an AI girlfriend or, what have you, any number of the kind of uh, forms of media that we interact with. And it can be very effective. And because it's specifically crafted for you, it can have a sense of your own level of intellectual self-defense and and can incorporate that into the message. And and this is something that PSYOPs people talk about as well, right? It's like, what do you... What are your 
priors and how do I get around those priors, right? How do I get around your um, ability to defend yourself intellectually? Right? Or indeed mobilize your priors for my own purposes. Exactly, exactly. And um, so I think this question of media literacy in this psyops landscape is is really difficult and much more complex than, you know, reading a book about, you know, here's the diff five different strategies that advertisers use to <laughs> you know, get you to buy Coke or whatever it is. You know? yeah. Because there's no in principle limit to the scale that a sign-up can exist at, right? It's not... Uh, yeah, because you, you remove that cost, right? So you, you've, you've made it very, very cheap to do operations that previously would have been enormously expensive. Or, or indeed completely free, as you were saying, in the sense mm -hmm. that in some sense, I think the we can read this, um, I don't know how to describe it, mass psychogenic illness uh, of the um, targeted individual, right, which is a gang stalking, right, which is a uh, a belief that shared by people on the internet in communities that self-organize around this belief that they, they uniquely are being sort of targeted. Um, I don't want to make any kind of presumptions or like claim any mass diagnosis here, but like it strikes me that in some sense, the motivation for that feeling of being uniquely targeted is an underlying worry that you are not particularly special, right? And that therefore mm. you can, in some ways, get out of your own feeling of, of uh, yeah. marginality by finding some sort of a grand plan that is uniquely and specifically for you. I think about the genre of spy films, which in some ways is a kind of a more simple version, a kind of a level one version of the PSYOP, which is perhaps at level two or three or four or who knows. Um, and I think of the quintessential gesture of the spy film or the spy narrative as being the revelation that the game you thought you were playing is in fact a mere single move in a larger game that encapsulates that game, right? So the, the uh, example I always think about here is the, the film of the John le Carre novel, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, starring... Richard Burton. And that happens like four or five times in that film. You, so he turns a corner, he sees something he shouldn't, and oh my God, he's in like a vast conspiracy that's even bigger than him. And then, oh my God, it's even bigger again, and even bigger again, and even bigger again. It has the, the same sort of, in some ways, conceptual strategic mood as those um, videos that are supposed to demonstrate just how small the earth is in comparison to stars, right? It zooms out, it zooms out, it zooms out. It zooms out. Oh my God, how big can these things get? You know, this yeah. kind of thing. And so there's a sense that there's like a quintessential move there in defining what the spy film or spy narrative is like. And I'm wondering, can we identify something like that for a PSYOP at some level, different level of abstraction, perhaps? Is there a, a sense that the PSYOP has a kind of a, a quintessential gesture? It, it, it depends on like the, how much money they spend, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so yes, yes. I mean, that, but, you know, uh, <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, when you look at some of the more elaborate ones that Doty talks about, you know, his targeting of a man named Paul Benowitz, for example, or a journalist named Linda Moulton Howe, there were many layers of those stories that have been crafted. They would plant things for that person to see, knowing that they would interpret it in a particular way and follow up on that. There was a huge amount of theater that went into it. And so there is the construction of this rabbit hole, for lack of a better word. There is the construction of the evidence that will lead you into that rabbit hole. And there, the, the operations he described are, are 
quite elaborate and, and quite theatrical. And at that time, were very expensive. And they were the kind of thing that you would really only do if you did have a, a spy that you were trying to counter, or there, or you, there was a politician you were trying to influence, or, or somebody of enormous value um, that would be worth spending that money on. Um, but in terms of what I what I think you're asking about is this this the creation of 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 a world or a narrative, for lack of a better word, that that unfurls itself and puts you as the target of that narrative in the position of imagining that you are uncovering some kind of reality or experiencing some kind of revelation. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which is the same feeling, perhaps in a simpler way, that lots of conspiracies also exactly. take. Exactly. The feeling of intellectual hygiene, the feeling of thinking for oneself, even as one repeats the same narrative, in, in case, some cases that have been around for sort of centuries and centuries. It strikes me that the, the work, particularly of Doty, in seeding lies uh, mixed in with truth has produced a sort of a, what do you think of as a sort of a, a moat of cringe <laughs> around uh, the investigation of yeah. U.S. Air Force, um, yeah. in particular, and U.S. secret operations more generally, the UFO community is embarrassing. The UFO community is is full of cranks, people who you really wouldn't want to like get into a long conversation with. Yeah, there was a recent LinkedIn post by um, the head of the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, which is this government department, like a kind of a department of the military that has been tasked with working out what these things are. Doesn't seem to be doing a very successful job. It's the department from which David Gorch, uh, who's this whistleblower, seems to have um, had some contact with, or maybe he was in it, I can't remember exactly which. Um, a LinkedIn post by the leader of this the other day criticized Gorch, saying Grush. that Gorch, Grush, sorry, criticized Grush, saying, uh, I've, not, I've only seen this word written down, it's a <laughs> perennial problem, um, saying, psyoped by English spelling, um, said that the officers who had like joined that unit were afraid of their own career progression because it seemed such a ridiculous thing for them to be doing and they were taking a risk and they should be respected for that risk. How do we get into this position where doing something that, at least on the surface, looks not entirely different from investigative journalism, which is a very high status, high prestige kind of activity, became constructed as like four cranks and four weirdos and, and so on. How do we how do we get into the situation? Well, half of it is because it is ridiculous, and half of it is because it's been made to be ridiculous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, this, yeah this is exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I mean But the question the question is which half is which, right? Right, exactly. So when you look at the history of UFO work, there is an enormous amount of folklore. There's an enormous amount of really, if I say intellectually dishonest, that seems uncharitable. And I don't want to be uncharitable to people that I think um, have good intentions. But there is a craft to investigative journalism, and there is a discipline to it, and there is a rigor to it, which is which is learned, right? I mean, you have to learn how to investigate things. You have to learn what sorts of evidence is good, what sorts of evidence is bad. You learn how to cross-check things, um, to find multiple sourcing for things. Um, you learn 
bullshit filters. Um, so in the absence of that, um, I guess without having that training, it's very easy to look at a world that is filled with strange things and, and is filled with anomalies. It is filled with complexities and contradictions. And to put that together into a story that appears to make sense, right? And this is how conspiracies work. Point being, there is a craft to, to investigations or investigative work. Now, there is also a history of agencies like the CIA and like the Air Force of using UFOs as a way to do psyops, I guess, for lack of a better word. I mean, this is what Doty's career was all about, but that history goes back to the 50s, you know, when the CIA is has internal documents about how do we use the flying saucer phenomena as a way of conducting psychological operations. And there's documentation of them, you know, trying to plant stories about flying saucers in Guatemalan newspapers, you know, while they're trying to orchestrate a coup there, for example. Um, there's long histories of, of the Air Force using the figure of the UFO to try to divert people away from looking at things like stealth airplanes or electronic warfare systems or investigating really uh, Pentagon largesse. Um, now there is also a history of in things like electronic countermeasures and electronic warfare of really creating UFOs to appear on other people's sensors or to use objects that look like UFOs in order to collect intelligence or do the sorts of operations that uh, if you did with an F-16 would be an act of war, right? And would be easily attributable to you, right? And so there is a world in which um, UFOs have been synonymous with the history of kind of deception operations. And that um, yeah, is another part of, of that, that story as well. So it's a, it's, it's a lot of complicated stuff going on there. Um, but, you, but you're right, but it, it does add up to a, a kind of a taboo um, a, a kind of, as you described it, a moat around uh, UFOs. And, and that moat is very useful to, you know, people that want to use that meme or the hyper meme, really, of, of the UFO to, um, to do stuff. Hmm. You mentioned there briefly these objects um, that I'd just like to get your description of because I think I find them fascinating, uh, which are used in order to collect data from sensory systems that target them or that light them up in various ways. Could you just tell us about the kind of the brief bit of the history of that? Because I think that's one of the most kind of exhilarating parts. Yeah. I mean, so here's another place where we get into, you know, Area 51 and all this kind of things as well. Um, so the, the longer history is that in the 1950s, the CIA was building 
they wanted to um, basically do uh, surveillance of of the Eastern Bloc. And so they built the U-2 spy plane. And the idea was to build a spy plane that could fly so high that it wouldn't be able to be tracked on radar and that surface-to-air missile systems and fighters wouldn't be able to reach it. They built the U-2. The follow-on to the U-2 was something called the A-12, which is the CIA's kind of precursor to an airplane called the SR-71. Really, really fast airplane. But the other part of that program was research on stealth technology. So they're trying to figure out how do you make these spy planes invisible to radar. And they, they did that by having curved surfaces and, and you know, inward canted you know, rudders and that sort of thing. Um, now, when they were doing that work, they realized that you don't have to think about stealth just as hiding things. We can think about this as a, a philosophy of designing objects that look like whatever you want them to look like on whatever system you want them to look like. Um, like the two, what, I, I got lost in my words there, but, but yeah, the idea is making um, objects that, that look very different depending on what you're looking at them with. So they had a program called Palladium. This is very early history of um, you know, electronic warfare. And it was to design objects that to a early warning radar system might look like a fleet of bombers to a surface to air missile system might look like a UFO flying all over the place. And when they scrambled fighter planes to intercept this object, it might look like a, a floating cube inside a sphere, like a, a weird balloon or something like that. And the, purpose of doing this was to kind of float objects over adversarial airspace. And what, it, what you were trying to do was to get that, the, the country that you're trying to learn about, to, to paint that object with as many different sensor systems as possible. So you wanted to be painted with the surface-to-air missile. You wanted to be painted with the early warning radar system. You wanted to be um, painted with the you know tactical radar system on the on the fighter plane, um, and you would have a sensor on that object that would be collecting all of those frequencies, and you would be able to learn an enormous amount of what those adversarial systems could do by um, by by being having a sensor that was ingesting that material. Um, now, this is happening in late 1950s, early 1960s. They, they, they called these things ghost planes, was, was the name that they had for them. Um, fast forward you know, 50, 60 years, you know, this has only gotten a lot better since then. But we don't know how, presumably. You know, this is a, it's a thing that, that's really difficult to, to learn about. Um, not only because it's, you know, very secret, but it's incredibly technical as well. One of the more kind of conventional ways in which people discuss art, right, as a domain, uh, is that it consists of images that are in some ways ambivalent or mm -hmm. undecidable or subject to a kind of like reflective agency on the part of the subject, mm -hmm. as you put it earlier. And I feel like this description of these objects, which are deliberately designed so as to be, you know, kind of... Um, on, or, or multiply readable 
in this exact, this very like precisely defined sense, strike me as the quintessential way in which like a they make minimalism like really boring, huh? I mean, I think about- right, absolutely, yeah, like completely. <laughs> no, but I think about these things within a history of art for sure, and I think about this as a as a history of 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 adversarial sculpture, really, for lack of a better word, right? Um, and and it, it was a, a conscious that I, that I mentioned minimalism, right? Just in terms of the theoretical framework that that kind of became fashionable to think about minimalism was to create objects that um, shift based on your the physical place that you're looking at them from mm. and sort of um, embody that relationship. Um, and why I said that I think these CIA's adversarial sculptures are far more interesting is that it's that that's the that that's the given. What are you going to do with that and using that as a narrative device? Mm. Do you think of your own work as a species of adversarial object making? What is adversarial to, or is that too much of a sort of a, a grand claim for its um, political? Well, lines? I think I'm not trying to do psyops, right? And so I'm not. I'm not. Trying Which is to, exactly what a yeah science uh, <laughs> exactly, of course doer would say. <laughs> Navara also, um, by the way, not doing psyops, just 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 for the. Uh... <laughs> um, you know, I don't. In general, no. I mean, in in general, like I don't. I, I think I have. I, I don't have an ulterior motive. I guess. Um, in 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 the artwork that I make, and, and when you're building ghost airplanes or conducting disinformation campaigns, you absolutely—that's the point—is the um, is the is the ulterior motive. Um, however, I do. I I am interested in in that phenomena as a as a narrative device. I guess, for lack of a better word, right? Is um in in kind of having that interplay between the object or the artwork that you're making and a and having built into that artwork a concept that there is a viewer and that you're thinking about a relation between the viewer and the, and the and the object that you're making like I don't I'm not an art for art's sake kind of person your game cyclops advertises itself as a sort of a psyop, as a kind of a willing psyop, a kind of a consensual psyop, uh, in order to develop psyop liter- literacy. Can you just talk us through the very, very early stages of that that process of, of entering into that world? Yeah, so um, Cyclops is um, like an, an alternative reality game that, that I've been making for several years and is, is sort of in beta now and it's, it'll be coming out, um, be rolling out over the next few months. The idea behind it was to to use some of these um, that ideas that we've been talking about, like you know, a kind of consensual theater or um, a uh, this aesthetics of investigation of collaboration. It's 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 really a game that's meant to be played by people working together online in order to solve puzzles and advance a story by solving those puzzles. And it's designed in such a way that I, I think it would be impossible for one person to do. It, it, it requires an enormous range of skills. Now, in order to solve all of the 
puzzles, though, you're doing things like you have to learn something about cryptography. You have to learn something about internet security. You have to learn something about um, open source intelligence, right? And you have to... My best friend jokes that Cyclops is like a game that teaches you how to be me. (laughs) 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 Um, So it's basically just teaching a lot of the skills that I've learned over the course of my career that have been helpful to me in different contexts to do everything from physical security to um, intellectual self-defense. And it does that through the medium of a game that's set in the 1950s and 1960s. The The whole game is made out of technology that existed back then, or emulated technology. So you're interacting with old, you know, pre-Unix computers and um, looking at old documents and things like that. And um, it, it, the story that it evolves is one about about these mind control experiments. So it kind of takes place in the world of, 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 of MKUltra and, and related experiments that the CIA was doing. Um, and the documentation of which was all burnt, right, by, by Richard Helms in, in 1973, when the CIA realized that journalists and Congress people were, had sort of gotten the gist of what was going on here um, and were going to come with questions, the the CIA burned most of the documentation of those programs, um, in a similar way to uh, the, the 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 destruction of all the um, documentation of the um, in, interrogations in the in the yeah. war on terror many years later. So the, the the conceit of the game is that we're reconstructing these histories and we're reconstructing you know what could have taken place. Um, in the context of um, MKUltra, and it goes into a lot of the foundations of, of, of things like psyops. And um, on one hand, and of cognitive science and, and AI on the other. And these fields, weirdly, are very, very much related to each other in the early years. You know, the idea with mind control being like, I'm going to have a theory of your brain that allows me to erase memories, implant my own memories, get you to do what I want you to do. It, and the, this is very much adjacent to the theory of mind that was in informing early artificial intelligence. And in, 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 in many cases, it was people working right next to each other, going to the same conferences and that sort of thing. And and in, in under the MKUltra contracts, which we do have records of, you know, there are definitely uh, people who are artificial intelligence researchers who are who were on that um, on that payroll. Somebody like um, uh, Woody Bledsoe, who was the uh, invented facial recognition, was was funded by MKUltra. It's kind of surprising in some ways that there are not more conspiracy theories now about the upgraded versions of these technologies. Uh, it's remarkable, for example, that Elon Musk, despite owning. Uh, a massive defense contractor company, SpaceX, and Neuralink, which is literally a, a mind reading and potentially writing control machine, <laughs> is not more like targeted by these conspiracies. It's really, really extraordinary in some ways. No, it's it's really interesting. It's it's really. I mean, SpaceX is a perfect example of a, of that kind of a psyop. I guess people will think, like, oh, it's a civilian space company. Like, what are you talking about? It's civilian, the same way that Lockheed Martin is civilian. Yeah, right. right. It's a defense contractor. I mean, that's. Right. A, <laughs> 
in the same way that uh, Tesla is in some ways a byproduct of a misguided carbon credits uh, piece of legislation <laughs> exactly. brought about in the Obama industry in, in the Obama era that just pumps money out of uh, car companies for yeah. electric ones. Um, looking very briefly towards the future, in August 2021, I appreciate that that's the past, but in August 2021, uh, China launched a hypersonic missile, um, which they were able to not only fire around the world and almost although not Farms. actually hit their target. Yeah, yeah, they were, they were able to turn it in space as well, which is extraordinary. And the US military doesn't, as far as I understand, know how to do that, or indeed know how the Chinese did it. Um, because this thing is flying at 15 times or so the speed of sound, if you turn it in space, it simply disintegrates. Um, that didn't happen to this missile. So the question is, how did they do that? That's not the question for you. I'm not asking you how they did that. Um, my, my question is, is that event... Or are the events of the Chinese spy balloons, are, are these different kinds of uh, media events contributing to the current wave of uh, interest in UFOs? And if they're not, do you think, knowing what you perhaps know about the development of new forms of technology, do you have any predictions about how PSYOPs in this field might change, shift over the next coming years? In, in relation to UFOs, you mean, or in relation to advanced technology? or Advanced technology, things in the sky. I mean, so what was remarkable about the Chinese balloon, as, as we know, is that when you look at, you know, early warning radars, they are, they're calibrated to look for bombers and fighters and things like that, right? So they weren't calibrated to look for slow-moving objects and... Um, it, was, it was filtering out an enormous amount of data. And when they turned those filters off, the skies were filled yeah. with UFOs and they were scrambling F-22s to shoot down, you know, amateur, you know, hobby <laughs> balloons and, and, you know, um, and, you know, birthday balloons and that sort of thing. I think the UFO story now is a little bit different. Um the UFO story is an incredibly powerful meme. I think about it as a, a hyper meme. <laughs> it's just something that you can read an enormous amount into and read an enormous amount out of. It's a, it's a, and I, I use a hyper meme in the sense of something akin to a religion. Right, it does an enormous amount of work in a lot of different ways, and that reveals evidence of itself in a lot of different contexts. Right, but there is a wish, right, and and they that that underlies it. And I've been thinking a lot about why UFOs now, and I think a part of it is, of course, that we're living at a moment in time where it is very difficult to make sense of, right? On one hand, one of the things that's always been so interesting to me about the UFO conversation is the the taken for granted that if UFOs exist, that this changes everything and this will be the most important you know, piece of information that the humans have ever received. And I think about what, why is that at the center? Why, what is that? Why is there the promise of this 
piece of revealed knowledge constituting the end of a moment in modernity. And what is, what is that desire? And I wonder if there is a... When people talk about recovered UFOs, I mean, part of the, the current story is that there's crashed UFOs that are in the basement of Lockheed Martin or different uh, places like that. And, and when you hear people from the UFO world talk about that, they say, well, there must be enormous enormously powerful ways to create energy for free in UFOs because they can do these supernatural looking things. And if we are able to have access to that energy, then we can have unimaginable abundance with no negative effects on the climate or the planet. So what so there's I wonder if there's a part of a, a a wish to be liberated from from capital that underlies the um UFO myth and if that's a part of it then you know the experience that we have of capital at the moment which is you know always towards you know increased precarity increased alienation, increased subjugation um, is uh, perhaps part of the UFO myth is a desire for liberation from that. You're currently in California, um, working in the desert. I'm currently in California. <laughs> not that's not an accusation. Um, you're currently in California, uh, <laughs> thinking about how to be liberated via the UFO myth. Um, <laughs> working in the desert. Uh, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you working on? So I've, I've been doing a project for a couple years now where um, there's about 350 objects that are in orbit around the Earth that nobody knows what they are. Um, the things the military sees them on radar. The military actually publishes radar data about them, um, but the military is not able to classify them. So they're not classified as satellites. They're not classified as secret satellites. They're not classified as debris objects. They're classified as other we don't know. And so to me, that's just really interesting that that exists, right? I mean, that there are genuine <laughs> UFOs, I guess, for for lack of a better word. Um, and and I, I've been developing techniques to try to photograph them, to try to photograph the trail of light that they make across the sky and been doing things like trying to analyze their orbits and seeing how they behave. Um, but what's curious to me, I guess, in, in my own process with them has been what is that, what is my desire to see them? What is my desire to try to make sense of them? And on the other hand, I've been thinking of, of them almost as anti-memes, like anti-UFOs, in the sense of like, the UFO is a story, it's a grand narrative about the universe and, and the future and technology and our place in the cosmos that we're trying to find evidence to put into. And these unknowns are 
objects that are there, they're real. I, you, I can see them with my telescopes. Um, and yet there is no story that they fit into and they're almost can be no story for them to fit into. And so I, I'm thinking, so I've, I've been, this idea of the anti-meme has, has really um, cohered in, in my mind in terms of how to think about these. They're, they're almost like the op- opposite objects, opposite of so many of the um, cultural objects that have so much uh, um, power, I guess, at the moment. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is super fun. And you're, you said you were touring a talk. I, 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 I just, I, I, so, I sometimes just describe myself as being on tour because I travel a lot sometimes. Um, you know, I'm, I'm currently putting together, a, you know, I, I do a lot of lecturing and, you know, speaking. And so I'm thinking now about the, the really a lot of the things that we talked about today, these, Military histories, these um, histories of uh, cognitive science and mind control experiments and artificial intelligence and psyops. And I'm really just trying to create a, a kind of a history and a framework for thinking about the, you know, increasingly bizarre <laughs> world of, of uh, adversarial culture that we're uh, finding ourselves uh, uh, swimming within. <laughs>